Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, the 17th of January, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to have Charles Mallett with me in the studio. Welcome, Charles. Thank you very much, Brian. And we'll also be um, joined by Vanessa Beely speaking from Damascus. Well, where should we kick off? I can think of no better place than uh, to listen to what the uh, to what uh, the Minister of War is how I'm going to refer to him. I think it's pretty apt, but let's have a little look at what uh, Grant Schraps has been saying over the last couple of days. In 2024, Britain stands at a turning point in our history. You're seeing the proof every day. The world has become acutely dangerous all around us. Our enemies are preparing. And we are just seeing the start of the tragic consequences. From Ukraine to the Middle East, the South China Sea to North Korea, South America to Africa, and new theatres from cyber to space warfare. All of which could have a disastrous impact at home. How we respond will define our future. And the choice is clear. The era of the peace dividend is over. And now, just like our enemies, we must plan and invest for an era of confrontation. Because the very best way to prevent war is to be prepared. And in the face of these many threats, too often people count Britain out. Well, they are wrong. Britain can change the course of history. We can lead the world in fighting for freedom. And when needed, we can still fight and win. But to do so in this more dangerous world, we must take a lead in NATO, back Ukraine until the very end. Better support our personnel, upgrade our nuclear deterrent, rapidly modernize our forces. In doing so, we will deter our enemies, lead our allies, and defend our nation from a far more dangerous world. Well, Charles, I don't know what you thought of that, but I just uh, found it incredible that a man could be so enthusiastic to tell the nation that peace is over and we're now going to enter what really is a perpetual period of war. He's so enthusiastic. He's so keen that UK has a part to play in this war. Of course, he won't be near the fighting and certainly won't be near the dying. He'll leave that to other people to do. But I just found this uh, really gruesome uh, piece from Grant chaps um, because he is so enthusiastic about war. So this is uh, a little bit of, of more of what he had to say on his uh, Twitter or X as it's now called. Every day we're seeing the tragic consequences of the more dangerous world we're living in. How we respond will define our future and the choice is clear. Uh, just like our enemies, we must be prepared for a new era of confrontation. So I'm going to put a label in there. Yes, it's war, war and more war. And this is the quality of our politicians. We're not going to talk about peace. We're not going to work for peace in the world. Uh, we're not going to work with allies to uh, achieve peace. We're simply going to prepare for war. And it appears from his attitude, gloat, uh, that we can whip up as much of it as possible. Am I being unkind, do you think, to this man, Charles? No, I don't think so at all. I think that's, that's spot on. He wants confrontation. He needs it. He needs it. And uh, I think we can just move straight on because, of course, uh, uh, if you're going to uh, 
prepare for perpetual war and get involved in it, you are going to have to cough up the money. And he seems to have a lot of money to produce, certainly for Ukraine here. He does. We've talked a lot about funds to Ukraine, particularly on the, the military front. But while speaking at Lancaster House, Grant Chap spoke particularly about supporting Ukraine by the provision of drones. He said it sees us increasing our military support to 2.5 billion, taking the total of UK military aid to more than 7 billion, with even more gifted directly from the UK's equipment inventory. 200 million will be pressed into producing and procuring thousands of drones, including surveillance and long-range strike drones. This continues the UK's proud record as a leading donor, always being the first to get Ukraine exactly what they need. So I've highlighted drones because he spent time being very specific about their provision. Now, concurrent with his speech and his announcement is the, well, the, the ongoing defence and security accelerator, the open call for innovation. And this relates to Operation Mobilise, as well as learning lessons from the Ukraine conflict. But specifically, there's a lot of focus on uh, activities that do not involve human beings. I've got here the human augmentation funding uh, with sort of between quarter and half a million pounds worth of funds going to various projects. And by way of example of what is out there at the moment, we've got the uh, making science fiction a reality. Something UK Collins talked about in the past is the Dragonfire Consortium, laser fire power through the medium of directed energy weapons and lasers. So pertinent to what Shaps was talking about is the announcement back in September from Raytheon, one of the very big defence contractors, that it's been developing one such technology or capability. And this is the news that it's set to receive and integrate UK's first laser weapon system in October. Some of the text from that press relief is illustrative re release. Sorry, uh, The high energy laser weapon system has performed as designed in multiple field tests, including in difficult weather conditions with extreme heat, cold, rain and the rest of it. During four days of live fire exercises earlier this year in the United States, the system successfully acquired, tracked, targeted and destroyed dozens of drone targets in short range attack, swarm attack and long range threat scenarios. So I got in touch with Raytheon in order to uh, see whether they had any comment or update on exactly this particular bit of news. They, they didn't get back to me. Um, over this last sort of period of conflict, we've, we've been treated as though all communications from Russia must be considered as misinformation. So how should we treat news back from 2020 in which the Russian defence minister spoke at a meeting of the Federation Council and said during that meeting that the in December of last year, the first avant-garde missile regiment, missile regiment, and the Perezvet laser devices went on combat duty. So, is this propaganda or is it credible? How should we view it? If we take a look at the Odin weapons database run by the United States military, which in effect gives details on all known weapon systems around the world. The Perezvet is listed uh, and it's described by Odin 
as being successfully used against unmanned aerial vehicles. At the same time, its effectiveness directly depends on environmental conditions. In good weather, it works perfectly, but fog, rain, snow, and other adverse weather events can interfere with the passage of the laser beam. So it looks rather like uh, the development, or at least the prospective development, of Raytheon and, and other government-funded projects. Um, so this, of course, is, is completely contrary to the suggestion that the the effect or the, the addition of drones will indeed solve the problem. So I think there are two questions to ask here. First of all, what effect does SHAPS seek to achieve by at the same time providing drones and ammunition or at least weapon systems that can destroy and defeat drones uh, if it looks like the Russians are able to do exactly the same thing? And the second question would be, to whose benefit is any of this other than the military-industrial complex and politicians? Yeah, I think it's a good good question, Charles. I think Western military have got a big problem at the moment. They haven't got defence to the hypersonic missiles. And in my opinion, there's no doubt that the Russians are using these. Um, but also now the Russians have got huge experience of using drones, uh, more drones and better quality drones than the Ukrainians. And I think the uh, drive on drones by the UK is to try and and achieve what they keep talking about, which is a frozen conflict. But the reality is that the Russians are uh, operating this grinding movement forward the whole time, and uh, they've consistently proved that they've got better drone capability and counter-drone capability with their electronic warfare. So uh, who's going to benefit the military-industrial complex, as you say? But um, if this is UK now boasting of its ability to help Ukraine win against the Russians. Uh, let's just have a look at some reports about the reality of what's going on in UK. So thank you very much to the viewer who sent this through. Is this the truth? Is this the whole truth or anything near the truth? I have a suspicion that this ship is being kept out of range of hypersonic missiles. Now, the gentleman concerned, I think, was talking about the um, Royal Navy aircraft carriers. But here's the headline. Royal Navy crisis is 3 billion warships, Red Sea mission scuppered by low staff numbers. And now we're really into something because it's quite clear that uh, behind the scenes, the UK's military is not falling apart. It's being taken apart by policy. And if you want to know how bad it's got, have a look at this from UK Defence Journal. The headline is Britain has zero active naval supply ships for the first time. These in my day will be known as the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. They provide ammunition, fuel and stores and other supplies and munitions for the fleet at sea. If we put some text on here, it says for the first time ever in the modern era, the Royal Navy has no active supply ships and currently depends entirely on allies for the replenishment of stores, including ammunition at sea. The Royal Navy has witnessed its active storeship count drop from four in 2009, a pathetic number in my view, to none today. And if we add to that, it mentions RFA, Royal Fleet Auxiliary Fort Victoria, 
which says is currently the UK's only vessel capable of providing solid stores logistics support to the Queen Elizabeth class carriers. Uh, but in a year, she's capable of conducting around 44 replenishments at sea, transferring 27,000 tons of fuel or 350 tons of ammunition as well as food and spares. But what's the problem? This ship is not available because she's laid up uh, with a uh, skeleton crew. So whilst we've got Mr. Shapps boasting that the UK is ready to take on Russia in World War III, the reality is behind the scenes, the British military has been stripped, hollowed out, and is uh, clearly, as far as the US, uh, the Royal Navy is concerned, not capable of performing its duties. But UK column has been warning about this. This, uh, this particular on-screen bit from forces.net is from the 20th of October 2020. If I just play it as a little video clip, you will see that the reports are listing all of the closed-down military facilities. It goes on and on. There's British Army barracks here listed in 21-22. There's RAF facilities. There's Ministry of Defence facilities on and on. This is the closure of Britain's naval capability while we have Mr. Shapps boasting that he's ready to enjoy World War III. So is he badly informed? Uh, does he not have the mental acumen to understand what's happening? Or is he just being completely deceitful on the British public as to the true state of our armed forces? I suspect it's a little bit of all of those. But if you want to say how bad has it really got, well, apparently we've got to advertise for admirals on LinkedIn in order to run the submarine fleet. Not only have we not got the admirals, apparently, although there's hundreds of them, uh, we don't know where the retired ones are, so we can't pick up a telephone or write a letter. We've got to use the LinkedIn. Um, I'm watching your face carefully on this one, Charles, because I get to a point with this that you simply don't know what to say. It's so bad. Perhaps uh, Grant Japs would like to step in. Uh, well, certainly we've got some questions. Vanessa, let's uh, bring you in because uh, we've got uh, we've got calls for war by Grant Shapps. And of course, uh, in your area of interest, we've got people being uh, killed, dying and maimed. And more of it seems to be underway. What's been happening with the court? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't know if everybody managed uh, to watch the South African presentation and the Israeli defense opinion the um, South African presentation was extraordinarily tight and you know an 80 what was it uh, 84 page um, submission um, the most interesting thing they they made a, a heavy focus on the genocidal intent now um, Malcolm Shaw who was the British lawyer representing Israel, um, dismissed the genocidal intent as random assertions. Um, so basically, he argued that they didn't have an intent to genocide, so mentions of genocide were just by the way. Um, he also, if, if you could just move on, Brian. Um, uh, so this was from attorney Tim Baker, oh gosh, <laughs> Ketubi for South Africa. Senior political and military officials encouraged without censure the 95-year-old Israeli army reservist Ezra Yachin, a veteran of the Dar Yassin massacre against the Palestinians in 1948, to speak to the soldiers ahead of the ground invasion in 
Gaza. And I quote from him, I quote the triumphant and finish them off um, and don't leave anyone behind. Erase the memory of them, erase them, their families, mothers and children. These animals can no longer live. If you have an Arab neighbor, don't wait. Go to his home and shoot him. We want to invade, not like before. We want to enter and destroy what's in front of us and destroy houses. Well, that sounds pretty genocidal to me. You can also go to a very good website, um, Law for Palestine, and there they've actually compiled 500 plus statements uh, and incitements by decision makers, army personnel and officers, legislators, journalists and influencers, former government officials and uh, public expression. It's also worth noting that Diana Butu, I watched her in an interview a, a, a day ago, um, and she mentioned the fact she lives in Palestine, and she said that on a daily basis, there is an incitement to genocide through public statements. Um, and then basically just look at what's continuing to happen inside Gaza in the last few days. Israel not only prevents the entry of aid into Gaza, but also kills those who try to receive it. I think it was yesterday that there was uh, two trucks of flour that managed to enter into central Gaza. And I think more than 50 people were shot or shelled um, by Israeli tanks and snipers as they ran to try and get um, much needed flour from the trucks. And in fact, the truck uh, ran over two people and killed them immediately. Um, so he says out of nowhere, and an Israeli tank emerged from behind a mound of sand and opened fire at random. We were attacked by two quadcopters at the same time, and I observed a pair of them. Everybody in front was hurt or killed. In a matter of seconds, at least 50 people were killed and numerous others injured. And of course, this includes uh, children, particularly. And then I just wanted to show a very quick video of um, people fleeing from Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus in southern uh, Gaza, which is meant to be safe. Um, and in reality, <clears throat> having destroyed already 30 out of the 35 hospitals in Gaza, they're now targeting Nasser Hospital, which, as I said, is one of the last um, operational hospitals in Gaza. And so people are basically now having to flee from there. We can just roll this. <laughs> Um, uh, in the West Bank, also uh, violence and the agenda for annexation in the West Bank, the use of settlers to basically um, terrorize the, the Palestinian inhabitants of the territory that is legally Palestinian. Um, and a report by uh, the Prisoners Club just uh, has found that since October the 7th, the IOF has abducted at least 5,980 Palestinians in the West Bank. So that's almost 6,000 hostages is how I see them, because none of them 
um, will be charged. They will be held in military prisons and very likely tortured and abused. Um, interestingly, what the South African case seems to have generated um, in, in the UK, Brian, sorry, the next slide, please. Um, war on Gaza complaint filed alleging UK ministers' complicity in Israeli war crimes. And just uh, moving on to the next slide, nine British soldiers and four British MPs have been identified by a UK-based advocacy group, which has filed a criminal complaint against them, um, alleging their complicity in war crimes committed in the Gaza Strip. This is from the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians. And just moving on. Um, the police themselves have defended their efforts, saying its war crimes team is obliged under the Rome Statute to support any investigations opened by the International Criminal Court that could involve British subjects. And just moving on again, please, Brian. Um, the South Africa is to sue US and UK for complicity in Gaza genocide. And the final slide, if you can just move on. Um, nearly 50 South African lawyers led by attorney Wickers van Rensburg are gearing up file a lawsuit against the United States and the UK asserting their complicity in Israeli forces war crimes in Palestine. Andalou Agency reports the initiative follows South Africa's filing of genocide case against Israel. Uh, Rendsburg, the driving force behind the legal action, aims to prosecute those complicit in the crimes through civilian courts collaborating with legal professionals. So interesting time. Interesting and terrible times. And of course, if we had politicians worldwide doing everything they could for ceasefire and peace, yeah. we would we might be on the route to sort this mess out. But of course, the UK and the US in particular are going to deny that they're doing anything wrong. They'll turn a blind eye to what's happening. All right, uh, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. We'll say to our audience, if you like what we do, uh, please join the UK column, take out a membership and help support us financially. Financially, we can only do what we do with your financial support. People want us to do more, which we'd like to do, but we need to expand to be able to do that. You can help us out, of course, by buying something through the shop. Uh, perhaps you might like to uh, purchase a membership gift voucher. Uh, but of course, the most important thing is we're producing this information for you to share and uh, to share as far and wide as possible. Um, now, a little advert here. We've got um, uh, tonight, 6.30 to 8 p.m., uh, end of life protocols and possible role in excess deaths. This is a debate. Andrew Bridgen is taking part, Professor Patrick uh, Pulisino, Professor Kevin Yule, um, if I pronounce that correctly, and Amanda Hunter, Chair of Together Social Care. And you can freeze the screen to have a look at this link in order to log on with that. Now, I'd also just like to thank the person that sent me through this uh, email from Andrew Bridgen. Uh, he is telling um, the public at large that he'd received an invitation to speak at what he describes as a plush-sounding event in Davos on January the 16th. The day I'm due to lead a debate in the House of Commons about worrying trends in excess deaths. What a coincidence. It reminds me that MPs are being offered this sort of jolly, which some might argue could amount to an advantage as defined by the Bribery Act 2010. I work for the people of Northwest Leicestershire, not the World Economic Forum. Uh, but I'm reminded of Keir Starmer talking to um, Maitland from BBC last year. You have to choose now between Davos or Westminster. 
And of course, Starmer said he prefers Davos. Um, Andrew Bridgen says he won't be going. So, um, Charles, take us into events with the World Economic Forum. Indeed. Thanks, Brian. Uh, yes, the meetings started this week in Davos, Switzerland. And just a reminder that neutral Switzerland via the Federal Council, its government are very much supporting the event to the point where it does look somewhat state sanctioned. And indeed, the Swiss taxpayer is footing the bill for security to the tune of five eighths of the total of nine million Swiss francs. This year, they have four themes at the World Economic Forum meeting, one of which is climate, nature and energy. Now, you'd think in these times of increasing world populations and increasing scarcity of resources, or at least that's what we're told, that a number of these events would concentrate on food production, uh, but not so. Only two of the very many events concerning climate, nature and energy do actually talk about food production, one of which is the First Movers Coalition for Food, a World Economic Forum initiative. And I want to draw your attention to this. The text is small, but it says food systems are responsible for 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I would label that as being extremely misleading because it's not qualified by stating that it is anthropogenic emissions. They cannot possibly mean overall emissions of greenhouse gases, in particular carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. Nonetheless, this proves the point that the focus is very much on the climate and the money that can be made out of climate uh, emergency propaganda, for want of a better word, and that money would be going to governments and to global corporations. So who else in Switzerland is concerned with the environment? Well, the uh, Swiss armed forces, who have a photograph here of a helicopter with lots of lovely alpine flowers in front of it, and they say that they should strive to protect nature. Well, of course, that's not all they're up to. They are also, through Air 2030, protecting our airspace. Now, I wonder exactly what it is they mean by our airspace. Here we see the air traffic in Davos as being restricted during the meeting. Now, that might be a completely reasonable thing to do, given the number of uh, attendees at what is, after all, rather a, a small place in a mountainous area. But interesting, though, to observe that the text refers to both the Federal Office for Civil Aviation and the Swiss Air Force. So special rules and procedures that have been worked out by both those organisations must be observed for approaches to and departures from regional airfields and heliports. Only specified visual flight routes may be flown. Accreditation is required for pilots and aircraft. Even after accreditation, a request must be made to the Air Force for every flight. The Air Force will then decide whether to grant or refuse permission in accordance with requirements and security considerations. Now, bearing in mind Switzerland uh, espouses that it is a neutral country, it is of interest and I would say significance that a World Economic Forum event has its airspace controlled not by the Civil Aviation Authority, but by the Air Force. What else are the Swiss Armed Forces up to? They have put forward 5,000 troops for the support 
of the security of the event. And you might say there's nothing unusual in that because, of course, in the United Kingdom, we have the MACA or military aid to the civil authority. But in Switzerland, it's worth pointing out that conscription still exists uh, up to the age of 25. All males are required to complete a military or civil service after the age of 18. So the involvement with the World Economic Forum, as though, as I say, it is a state-sanctioned entity, is, is interesting to say the least. Now, specifically, the command or commando cyber provides support for the communication between all cantonal police and armed forces, security forces. This requires secure networks like the Swiss Command and Control Network, which are independent of civilian providers. However, the data is transmitted in encrypted form from node to node. Civilian systems and the systems used by land forces and the Air Force are integrated into the overall system. This means that all uh, networks are centrally monitored jointly by all partners, i.e. the Air Force, land forces, sectors of the CSO and external companies. So again, what this means is that they've got armed forces who are Well, it's certainly questionable as to whether they are protecting Switzerland or whether they're protecting the World Economic Forum and indeed the precedent of having their their communication networks um, synchronised with those of civilian entities is is interesting to say the least and one wonders how long it will be before 77 Brigade here form a relationship with the World Economic Forum. Yeah, lots of questions uh, there, Charles. Um, we could have quite a discussion on that. But let's get into the meat of Davos and what better place to start than with Mr. Schwab, our world leader, unelected. The brutal aggression on the 24th of February 22 reminded us that we cannot have global prosperity without peace and security. Nearly two years since the war, Ukraine still stands still. Still stands. Its people stand and fight on a daily basis to protect the interdependence of the homeland. Thanks to your leadership, Mr. President, as well as the determination of every Ukrainian citizen, your country has remained incredibly resilient in response to the war. We are deeply grateful to you and the Ukrainian people for defending the values which are at the core of the international system and at the heart of liberal democracy. In 2022, Ukraine was granted EU candidate status and just last month's formal accession negotiations began. So there is no question that Ukraine remains firmly on the path of European integration as a result of you and your government's policies. We are eager to hear from you on what lies ahead for Ukraine in this critical time for your country, not only for your country, for Europe and for the world. Mr. President, the floor is yours.
well, there we are. We can go home because we haven't got to worry about life. We haven't got to worry about democracy or being protected or people looking after us uh, because President Zelensky of Ukraine is going to do all that for us, according to Mr. Schwab, a man who's standing on an international platform completely unelected, but uh, protected by the Swiss military. What an incredible situation. So let's listen to what can only be described as a rant. I've had to cut this short, but I, th I think you'll get the impression uh, from Zelensky himself, who has only one man to blame for all of the world's ills. Uh, I appreciate your willingness to hear, to hear answers to truly important questions. When will the war end? Is the sword world war possible? Is it time to negotiate with Putin? The full-scale war in Europe has been ongoing for nearly two years. Counting the time since Russia's illegal annexation of our Crimea, it's been almost 10 years. And for almost 10 years, Russia has been interfering in African countries from Sudan to Mali. The Syrian war still bleeding because of Putin's decision to prove something to the world has been ongoing for almost 13 years. In fact, one man, one man has stolen at least 13 years of peace, replacing them with pain, pain, pain and crisis that impact the entire world. Putin is trying to normalize what should have ended in the 20th century. Mass deportations, cities and villages raised to the ground, and the terrifying feeling that the war may never end. In fact, Putin embodies war. We all know that he is the sole reason why various wars and conflicts persist and why all attempts to restore peace have failed and he will not change. So there we are. There's only one man for all the uh, wars in the world at the moment. That's Putin, the West, the US, the UK. Absolutely nothing to do with it. They've been sitting on the sidelines calling for peace. Let's just focus on Putin. And this is the man that we've just given billions of pounds of aid for more weapons to allow him to prosecute his war, which ultimately is destroying his own country. If we have a look at this report from a few days ago from the Kiev Independent, this says it all. Uh, the Ukrainian military, well, Zelensky, proposes to mobilize between 450 and 500,000 new soldiers. They need more more bodies to die on the battlefield. And if we just have a look at this in very simple terms, he's asking, in fact, for another 500,000 men and women. Um, why? Because he's already lost two armies fighting the Russians. He needs more troops for another army. Um, and of course, he's saying to the West, give me your tanks, artillery, air defense missiles, ammunition, drones, and F-16s, uh, because he's basically wasted all of the supplies 
prize that he's been given. He hasn't, as um, Schwab actually accidentally said, um, Zelensky has not moved forward on the battlefield. He stood still. Uh, but if we just add into that, he's also, of course, saying the important thing, give me your money uh, because um, Ukraine is now bankrupt as a result of the war and it can only function with massive US and Western financial aid. So this is the state of it. Uh, but of course, we've got Rishi Sunak um, kowtowing with the uh, Ukrainian leader, never mind the casualties, to put in another 2.5 billion to keep this vile war going. Uh, well, if that's the state of uh, Ukraine, Vanessa, uh, bring us back into uh, matters to do with the Middle East. Yes, it's all escalating very rapidly here. Um, Israeli forces drill, this was in the Daily Star, <laughs> Israeli forces drill for Lebanon strike. Um, the withdrawal of the IOF forces from northern Gaza does suggest that they're intending a ground invasion or an escalation of the conflict um, with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Um, and this was from the commander of those northern uh, territory forces. We are more prepared than we have ever been to fight Hezbollah, even as soon as tonight if we need to, and we will continue to strengthen the readiness while assessments are going forward. Of course, this is complete insanity because the Israeli army has effectively been unable to beat the Palestinian resistance in Gaza, and now it thinks that it can take on um, Hezbollah, which is a far more serious proposition for them. At the same time, um, New Jersey uh, soldiers for the New Jersey Army National Guard are preparing for deployment to Syria and Iraq, increasing the footprint um, of the United States by 1,500 soldiers in Iraq and Syria. At the same time, uh, yesterday, Israeli uh, media stated that Iranian ballistic missiles crosses 1,200 kilometers uh, I guess they mean in, in first attack of its kind. The Islamic Revolution Guard Corps launched a ballistic missile. In fact, they launched uh, 24 ballistic missiles um, towards uh, Idlib in Syria and Erbil in Iraq. Um, and it crossed over 1,200 kilometers. Four Mossad officials and Peshwa Di Zayi uh, among those killed in Erbil in Iraq. Now, uh, Peshwa uh, Desai um, is responsible for basically stealing Iraqi oil and selling it to Israel. So clear what Iran's target was, but they also targeted uh, the headquarters of Khorasan that are trained uh, by the United States in northwest Syria before being transported by the U.S. to Afghanistan and to the Iranian border to carry out attacks on Iran. And they destroyed the main headquarters of the Islamic Turkestan party again in Idlib. There's a very strong message in, in the fact that Iran fired these missiles from the deep southwest of Iran, covering the 1,200 kilometers, because it's 1,200 kilometers, funnily enough, to Tel Aviv. So this was a very clear message after the terror attacks in January that assassinated one of their leading um, military commanders in Damascus and the terror attacks against civilians in Kiram in, in Iran. Again, uh, after ignoring warnings, Israel-bound Greek ship was targeted, so the Yemeni forces are continuing their attacks on Israeli-bound ships 
they're making it very clear that they're not attacking general shipping, only those that are connected to Israel or are bound for Israel. At the same time, reviving ISIS, a U.S. weapon against the resistance axis. Just moving on, there have been multiple attacks by ISIS in Syria since October the 7th. Clearly, it has definitely been um, rejuvenated here in Syria. Uh, Iraqi security forces are warning of, of an ISIS revival in the country, which coincides all too neatly with the spike in Iraqi resistance operations against U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria and with widening regional instability caused by Israel's military assault on Gaza. Um, It's also interesting that apparently, according to intelligence sources, the information they provided for this article, um, ISIS is being trained inside some of the most impenetrable areas of Iraq by the United States, which makes you wonder why those 1,500 soldiers are so necessary right now, when, of course, the U.S. is claiming to be fighting. Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Vanessa. Well, of course, the weapons systems are really bringing things home because there is no doubt that the US and the UK, NATO and the European Union, if we want to call that a military force in its own right, um, have been outplayed by development of these systems. And uh, so we're in a very fragile situation. And of course, the rhetoric of the West and the US over many years about the capability of their militaries now being sorely put to the test. So yes, the situation is incredibly volatile. And again, this surely is the reason that we should have politicians calling for peace and uh, not for more war. Charles, I don't know whether you've got anything to add on that, but I can't imagine that American ground forces are feeling very confident about being sent out there with a few thousand of them. No, I would think not. But the trouble is that I don't think peace pays quite so well. Uh, that, that is certainly true. Well, let's change subject and come on to democracy and how it works in the UK. And uh, I came across this very interesting report from the Courts and Tribunal uh, Tribunal's Judiciary that apparently there was groundbreaking family court reporting pilot, which was being rolled out to 16 more courts across England. And it says that there's a transparency implementation group uh, reporting pilot, uh, which for the first time made it the default position that the media could report on family cases. And this will be extended to 16 courts across the country. Uh, But the courts that will be taking part in the pilot from Monday, the 29th January, are northwest Liverpool, Manchester, sorry, in the northwest Liverpool and Manchester, northeast, West Yorkshire, Kingston upon Hell. Uh, Midlands, Nottingham, Stoke, Derby, Birmingham, London, Central Family Court, East London, West London, South West, Dorset and Truro, and the South East, Guildford and Milton Keynes. Now, all this sounds extremely interesting because, of course, UK Column has pointed out for many years that uh, family courts are effectively star chambers with a judge and no jury, and the families are invariably um, facing uh, teams of professionals who clearly want to take their children. But let's have a look at what the head of the uh, uh, the president of the family division had to say about this. He said that extending the reporting pilot to family courts across the country is a huge step in the judiciary's ongoing work to increase transparency and improve public confidence 
and understanding of the family justice system. I didn't get a warm feeling that the president of the family division didn't really understand his own system, but apparently they need to do this to find out. Uh, after pioneering a year of reporting from Leeds, Cardiff and Carlisle, journalists and legal bloggers will be allowed to report from a further 16 courts. And he went on to say that we hope uh, that uh, uh, that should be. We hope that in ex oh, sorry, we hope that in extending the pilot further, we can continue to understand the impact that family court reporting has. So they don't even appear to understand what the existing reporting does achieve. Uh, Sandra McFarlane goes on to say, I would like to urge the media uh, to read the guidance and come to the family courts to see the vital and challenging work that is done there and to report on the cases and issues that are so important. Now, I can't give you too much detail, but we can at least put some of the documents up on screen. This is uh, the statement by um, the head of the family law courts himself. And uh, let's just bring in a bit more text. My overall conclusion is that the time has come for accredited media representatives and legal bloggers to be able not only to attend and observe family court hearings, but also to report publicly on what they see and hear. Reporting must be subject to very clear rules to maintain both the anonymity of the children and family members who are before the court and confidentiality with respect of intimate details of their private lives. Openness and confidentiality are not reconcilable and each is achievable. The aim is to enhance public confidence significantly while at the same time firmly protecting continued confidentiality. So what the boss is telling us is that the public do not have trust in the system, and quite rightly so. And now we can see the meat of it, because the standard transparency order starts to tell you um, about what must not be reported to the public at large the name or date of birth, 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 sorry the name or date of birth of any subject child the name of any parent the name of any party who's party to or intervening the proceedings the address uh, the name and address of foster carers the schools on it goes this is not transparency i've called it opaque transparency but we can really show you the uh, a nonsense that is being put forward here uh, because it goes on to say for the avoidance of doubt the transparency order does not prevent publication by a parent of information that they would ordinarily be permitted to publish for example information concerning their child if it does not relate or refer to the proceedings the child's involvement in those proceedings or the evidence concerning that child within the case so the system continues with total gagging of the parents and no jury and a press who are also gagged to the extent that the family courts are now going to be running special training courses on what they can't report um, Charles, I found this breathtaking. I'll just pop this next bit up on screen because tomorrow uh, we have an interview with Sam Nass. This is the lady from Ganda that was trafficked. And then when she was given asylum in the UK, the next thing that happened was that social services took not only her daughter, but her son. And in this interview, you can hear what she really has to say about how the family court system works as a star chamber with simply a judge adjudicating, 
no jury, usually no press. And of course, the parents, particularly mothers, simply unable to speak out and defend themselves because of the teams of professionals who are working in collaboration around social services. So bear in mind what the head of the family law division has said and have a listen tomorrow at one o'clock to the interview with Sam Nass and uh, see what you think of how this system works in UK. Well, let's move on from there, Charles. And the subject is bird flu. It is. The Animal and Plant Health Agency declared last week that they have discovered bird flu in the islands of South Georgia in the South Atlantic in elephant seals and fur seals. They've confirmed this with a photograph of Dr. Marco Falchieri sampling a seal, which is a rather unfortunate choice of words. But the director, Ian Brown, has said uh, in relation to this that given Antarctica is such a unique and special biodiversity hotspot, it is sad and concerning to see the disease spread to mammals in the region. If avian influenza continues to spread throughout the sub-Antarctic region, this could significantly threaten the fragile ecosystem. So the point, or at least the focus here, is very clearly the suggestion that there is an illness which will have the capacity to spread from one species to another, in this case from birds to mammals. And if that can be the case, then in effect the sky's the limit. It also confirms the very single focus of the Animal and Plant Health Agency in that they will not consider any other eventuality for the ill health in those seals. For example, there is at the moment the International Atomic Energy Agency just beginning to conduct a survey of the impact of microplastics in that region, but again, not considered at all by the APHA. However, uh, the, the sort of genesis, or at least the, um, the engine room of this, is the Human Animal Infections and Risk Surveillance Group, actually known as HAIRS, and they have the specific remit of identifying emerging infection risks to human health. In effect, this obsession with the jump from uh, animals to humans. Why? Because it is a very effective control mechanism via fear. Uh, is it scientific, though, is the question that we really need to be asking. The uh, hares say that zoonoses, which is, in effect, the, uh, the, the terminology that's used to describe interspecies infections. Zoonoses are infections that can pass between animals and humans. You can get zoonotic diseases through direct contact with animals. If you work with animals, have pets, have hobbies that involve animals, you can also get some of these diseases from contaminated food or water or via insects such as ticks. So basically it makes it look like you can get this from pretty much anywhere if you have anything to do with animals. Is this the case though? Last year, you may remember, there was something of an emergency declared over the conditions surrounding avian flu. So we've got statistics, the latest statistics from uh, England, and you will see that there are only three cases in England and two in Scotland declared since the 1st of October 2023. Five cases out of a total bird population of around 4 billion. Um, just like with the COVID statistics, they're very keen to cling to the previous ones. So they have the numbers in still counting from October 2021, which is when the supposed emergency started. Now, you might be wondering, how is it possible that we could be in an emergency one year and then apparently absolute slack water the 
following year and how scientific can any of this really be? Um, so with reference to a specific um, incident that was mentioned in the House of Commons a year ago, John Whittingdale spoke about Kelly Bronze turkeys who reportedly lost 10,000 birds over the course of a weekend. I spoke to them directly. They told me that the Animal and Plant Health Agency had confirmed that it was bird flu present. So the question I would like to ask is, is it really credible that an infectious disease could kill 10,000 birds over the course of a weekend, and yet there would not be a trail of destruction outside in the wild bird population? And indeed, if zoonoses are a thing, uh, why is it that the people working with those birds were in effect unharmed? So the territorial nature of germ theory and terrain theory is such that neither side appears to uh, be willing to concede any ground and indeed sort of suggest that there might be any other factors at play. I wrote nearly a year ago to the Animal and Plant Health Agency under a freedom of information request to find out exactly what it is they do do when it comes to investigating uh, suspected cases of bird flu. And if we have a look at this, the, the reference is on the right-hand side of the screen there. You can look it up. It'll be in the show notes. And among the questions I asked were, in the event of a suspected case of H5N1 in a captive bird, what tests are conducted on the bird's supply of water and feed? And the answer, APHA do not carry out tests of water or feed. Next question, in the event of a suspected case, what tests are conducted on the bird's blood to detect any toxicity? Not held. APHA do not perform toxicity tests on the bird's blood. Next question. In the event of a suspected case, what tests are conducted for environmental toxicity in the immediate area? Answer. Predictably, APA, APHA do not carry out tests on environment. So is this really seeming scientific or indeed in any way logical? And what, what's the effect been? Apart from absolutely enormous culls, what's the economic effect been on the industry? And we have a look quickly at the egg statistics, the egg industry. Again, we talk about land use a lot. Now, worth noting that although we might be 91% self-sufficient in eggs, we do actually import 1.5 billion, as well as export 33, uh, sorry, 334 million eggs, which seems like quite a confusing statistic. But the industry trends are that egg consumption has gone up quite dramatically over the years. Between 2004-2021, uh, we on average consume 171 from 171 up to 202 eggs per person per year. So obviously this does have a significant impact on the way we live our lives. Now, you might be thinking, what direction is this going in? And you'd be right to ask such a question. Of course, in times like this, the suggestion of vaccination is never far from the headlines. Uh, with specific regard to avian influenza, it is currently the case that regulations prohibit vaccination of poultry. The current UK policy on bird flu vaccination is not to permit the vaccination of birds, either for disease prevention or as a disease control response. So if you're thinking about this as a human being and how that impacts on you, you'd be quite right to. Biosecurity early reporting, rapid action, culling and surveillance remain the most effective ways of protecting against and controlling an avian influenza outbreak. So whilst on the one hand they're prepared to put out the message that vaccination is not appropriate, they adopt the just-in-case approach and at the bottom of the text there you'll just see that a joint industry cross-government avian influenza vaccination task force has been established to explore options. Well how interesting 
not least because in October last year, there were findings presented by APHA saying that some seabirds may develop immunity to bird flu. The text stated uh, specifically that funding will respond to the evolving nature of avian influenza and that they bear a specific relation to the implementation of vaccination and how that might impact outbreaks. Who would be behind such things or indeed stand to gain? And here's a piece titled Why Bird Flu Vaccines Need Urgent R&D with a photograph, unbelievably, of a chicken wearing a mask. How it's supposed to survive with that on is not made clear. But this, of course, comes from Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, supported, as you are well aware, by the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and circled in red, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So what this story exposes, going back to the the South Atlantic, is that there are enormous conflicts of interest at the heart of this, and there seems to be a complete absence of any sort of scientific rigour. Yes, my mind goes back. I think it was Edwina Curry who created the huge scare in UK by saying that uh, you had to be careful with eggs because of salmonella. Mm-hmm. And she almost destroyed the industry overnight. So the theme appears to be fear, fear and more fear. Uh, but very interesting, those organisations that are there in the background. And I'm just going to reinforce this theme with the final section of today's news by just having a look at the sorts of people that are trained civil servants. And now, in my investigations, I came across this organisation, Apolitical, and uh, I was very interested that they seem to be very closely tied in with the Cabinet Office. What are they about? Well, this is their story. Let's expand that on screen. Whether we like or dislike government, love it or despair of it, most of us can agree that government plays a critical role in solving our hardest challenges. Do you agree with that, Charles? Because I certainly don't. I'm not sure that I From do. the climate and refugee crisis to the strain of urbanisation, the need for better cybersecurity and the urgency of adapting to a world where an algorithm is chasing your job. So don't worry, the government's got it under control. Uh, but they then say that public servants lack access to the best skills and solutions. And of course, you're going to go to a political to train up. And what does this organization say? It says that its mission is to help build 21st century governments that work for people and the planet. So trust the government, trust apolitical, because we're going to train governments to save your world. Now, uh, people can read this, but I'm always interested in people. And down the bottom, it's talking about the CEO of apolitical Uh, The co-founder is a lady called Lisa Witter. And I believe we've got a little bit of video here uh, where she's talking. And what I picked up on was the World Economic Forum label. Let's have a look at what she says. I'm Lisa Witter, and I'm the chief change officer at Fenton. We're the largest global public interest and social innovation company. And we work on advocacy, so improving the state of the world through laws. We work on behavior change, so getting men to get their prostate checked or reframing what it means to be a woman in today's world. And we help people who want to do good have more power. (music) 
This is truly global and not just global in the people who are sitting there, but global in perspective. And so you're all the time being challenged about what norms are. And there's a lot of assumption challenging, which I think is the only way to really break through and solve problems. The other thing is, you know, when you walk into a room with so many successful people, whatever that means, um, oftentimes the egos uh, are larger than the actual intelligence. And I find that the YGL community, there's a really strong tenant that you check your egos at the door and you come in really ready to do what you need to do to solve problems. We live in a world that feels like it's becoming more and more polarized ideologically and politically. And there's lots of reasons, the role of technology, the role of media, um, how we like to sit in our own cocoons because we're comfortable. And someone once described to me an important element of leadership is in listening so that you'll actually be open to changing your mind versus listening to reinforce what your common held beliefs are. And for me, that's really important. And the other thing is for me as well is, you know, a lot of people say that leadership is about, you know, coming from behind. While I think that's true, I also think leadership is about partnership and about sort of standing together. Well, there we are. That gives us a little bit of a flavor of the sorts of people that are training the civil servants. And then we can say, is it any wonder that the civil servants seem to be simply enacting policies which come out of young global leaders and the World Economic Forum and Davos? We've got a circle going on here. Let's look at one more. This is a lady called Robin Scott uh, from Apolitical. You can find it on Meet Our Team page. Uh, prior to Apolitical, she co-founded One Leap, an executive education company, and a Southern Africa non-profit teaching coding to vulnerable youth. She's written an acclaimed memoir and is an ambassador for the Access to Medicine Index and an advisor to the Responsible Mining Index, a World Economic Forum young global leader and a Gates scholar. So these are the sorts of people. I tried to drill in a little bit deeper to this organization, to the foundation, but I got a 404 uh, error page coming up, so that wasn't too successful. Uh, but where it got a little more interesting is that uh, there was also Apolitical Academy Global. This sounds very common purpose in its basics. And uh, I was interested in a collaboration between Academy Global and the Daniel Sachs Foundation foundation addressing leadership crisis. So don't worry if your government isn't doing its job, Apolitical is going to help it out. And uh, here's uh, the Daniel Sachs Foundation. And that led me through uh, to this on uh, Twitter, effectively, that a special event was put on. I just want to show you this last little film clip, uh, which gives us another look into how people around the world and especially young people are groomed by these very powerful um, non-governmental organizations. Let's just have a look at a little bit of this clip.
So I found that a very informative clip because essentially you've got what are vulnerable young people being taken into what is clearly ultimately a political environment. They're fed champagne and fine food. And what is this doing? It's effectively grooming them politically. And these are the individuals that will then spread the agenda back through into the political system, be it the US or the UK or the European Union. And at one point in that video, there was a young lady, um, probably from the Middle East, but serving food. And that was the reality of her position while the others were drinking champagne. But this is the reality of the sorts of organisations that are training our civil servants. And is there any wonder why we have such bizarre decisions being made in policies uh, in our political system here in UK? We must end there. So I'm going to say, Charles, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you also, Vanessa. Uh, if you're a member of UK Column, we will have extra in a few moments and we'll look at some of these subjects in a bit more detail. Uh, but we're going to say to, uh, to you out there, wherever you are in the world, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, we will be back at the same time on Friday. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.